one, uh, it's Amanda here. I'm going to be reading from the NIV, Esther chapter 6 and 7. That night, the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honour and recognition has Mordecai received for this? the king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman had entered, the king asked him, What should be done for the man the king delights to honour? Now Haman thought to himself, Who is there that the king would rather honour than me? So he answered the king, For the man the king delights to honour, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn, and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let the robe the man the king delights to honour, and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything that you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse and he robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisers and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet, and as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king asked again, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favour with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition, and spare my people. This is my request, for I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he? The man who has dared to do such a thing. Esther said, an adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in rage, left his wine and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realising that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. 
The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A pole reaching to a height of fifty cubits stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, Impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. Hi everyone, let me tell you a story about the worst lasagna I ever ate. Actually, it wasn't that bad. And the story really has nothing to do with the lasagna at all. It's a story that has everything to do with my own heart, my own pride. The poor lasagna was the unsuspecting victim in a lesson that God taught me about self-promotion and pride and how God's planning, God's ways are actually better than anything I could cook up. So it was quite a number of years ago before Charlotte was born. And a good friend of mine, who by the mercy of God was uh, coming out of a very difficult patch in, uh, in her life. And the church that we were both in at the time uh, were doing brilliantly in caring for her. There was good network of friends and older and younger people praying for her. Um, lots, of, uh, lots of care, both practically, physically, uh, including meals and lasagnas. Now this was going on for about a whole year. And as time went on, I started to think to my shame, well, my life's a little hard. And I'm not receiving a lasagna or a meal. Now, I never let that slip to anyone. This is all internal, you see. And I stewed on it. It ate me up. Again, this is ridiculous. This is a selfish response. My life wasn't going poorly at all. This is not something that... Um... Anyway, after a while of having this silent pity party, I made a comment to someone in the church about relating to this. And the next week, I got a lasagna and I felt pretty chuffed. Not in a lasagna, but that someone noticed me and heard my whinging and, oh boy... This is a horrible story. I went home and I ate it. And as soon as it touched my mouth, it tasted bad. No lasagna wasn't terrible. My sin was. I got a big mouthful of pride. God had allowed me in his grace to have what I wanted, only to use it as a way to deliver me from the very thing that was eating me up. You could say I was eating my just desserts. I could hear God saying to me between every bite, you got the lasagna and it tastes bitter in your mouth because of the sin in your heart. Now, that is not a very glorious God-honoring moment in my life, for sure. But what I learned in that is similar to what Esther 6 and 7 shows us. We don't have to panic if we can't figure life out. We We have a Savior who has it all figured out, a Savior who is overcoming the evil in me in this world, and that his plan and purpose is better than what I can come up with. So today in Esther 6 and 7, we're going to look at it in two scenes in two parts. The first one is chapter 6. I've called it A Sleepy King and Haman's Humiliation. So let's let's go and keep the lasagna story in the back of your head too. So, quick recap. Chapter 5 ended on a depressing note. After the feast that Esther prepared for the king, Haman, our villain, decided to kill Mordecai by impaling him on a massive pole in his front yard the very next day. Right now, as Esther and Haman are both planning, Esther's planning a banquet, remember, Haman is building a pole, that very night, something happens that forms a hinge in our story. An event takes place that shifts the story in a whole new direction. This is the pivotal moment in the whole story of Esther. But there's no Esther, there's no Mordecai, there's no Haman. And it all begins in the palace with the king having a sleepless night. Chapter 6, verse 1. 
This is the kind of sleep that makes you get up and start doing something because it's just so bad and so unsettling. Maybe you can know what this is like. Well, in typical King Xerxes fashion, he decides the best way forward is to have a bedtime story read to him, complete with tales of glory and opulence, desire, victory, and who better to read about to get the good feel vibe than, of course, himself. He's lying there, having his own chronicles of his life read back to him, and he hears about Mordecai saving his life. Remember the assassination attempt way back in chapter one that Mordecai foiled? The king's ears prick up here, and he says, oh yeah, what honour and recognition did I give Mordecai? He can't remember. Turns out he's totally forgotten about Mordecai, as the attendant says in verse three, nothing has been done for Mordecai. Now the Persian system is very important that the king's honour publicly uh, rewarding someone when they save their life or do something like that. For it was turbulent times, death stalked the palace halls, Xerxes himself will even be assassinated a few years' time by his own brother. So big public rewards secured allegiance and favour. We talked about God being sovereign over rewards a few weeks ago, if you recall. And Mordecai not being rewarded straight away, the king's bad sleep right here, all of this is directed by God and used in his redemptive purpose. So the king's now mulling over, what am I going to do about Mordecai? But at the same time, this is happening, another person has been awake too, Haman. And Haman is just always there in the story, like a bad smell floating around every corner in this narrative. And first thing in the morning, he's made his way to the palace, he's going to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the big 23 meter pole in his front yard, chapter 6, verse 4. And as Haman is standing there before the king, before he can even speak, the king decides to ask him, in verse 6, what should be done to the man who the king delights to honour? Get this, both of them are thinking about Mordecai. One wants to give him honour and life, the other wants to kill him. But Haman, in, in a comical turn of events now, magnificently trips over his own pride, says one commentator. You see, he interprets the king's question in light of his own glory and honour, as he thinks to himself in verse 6, Who is there the king would rather honour than me? He's blinded by his own sense of self-importance. He can't imagine that anyone would deserve more honour than him. He's driven by pride and greed. It's insatiable. It eats him up. And and his reply is just as decadent as the king's party back in chapter 1, verse 1 to 8. For he says this, For the man the king delights in, have them bring a royal robe, the king has worn horses, the king has ridden with a royal crest placed on his head. Then let the robe and the horses be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them ride into the, uh, to the city streets proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man who delights, the king delights to honour. So to have the king's royal robes, remember this was to have the best in the country, the best there possibly was, same with the horse. So that's why he wanted the king's things. But moreover, wearing the king's robes, riding the horse, let people know very publicly you were closely associated with this king. It let everyone know the king liked you. It was a great gesture dripping with status and position, and Haman wanted that even more. Well, the king thought this was a good idea and says to Haman in, in verse 10, Go at once and get the robes and the horses and do just as you have said. Now, Haman, no doubt, thinks it's going very well for him at this point. And here's the very moment where Haman's face drops and he licks his own wounds. Verse 10, for Mordecai the Jew who's sitting at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything. Ouch. The king's so specific, isn't he, about Mordecai. Which Mordecai the Jew? Which Mordecai the Jew? At the gate. 
There's no mistaking it. This is the very same person Haman wanted to kill. And if you're like me here, you smile and chuckle, letting out a little cry of victory, a little whoop perhaps, because Haman's gotten too big for his boots. He's been cut down to size. Now, the the narrative skips over the actual details very quickly because we're not too concerned with the event itself. What we really see is the before and the after. And now, in verse 12, we're given a temperature check on Haman, how he really felt about it. It says, Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief. Why? His plantic of Mordecai on his big fancy pole has evaporated. The king's exaltation of Mordecai squashes any chance Haman has of killing him now. And so he gets home, and just like we've seen before, he tells his wife and his friends all that's happened, but they don't respond the same way as they did in chapter 5, verse 14, with joy, there's no plan. They just say to him, oh man, Mordecai's exalted in 613, you're going to be dethroned from your own little empire, and they show little sympathy. sympathy. Even worse is, as a Jew, Mordecai is now going to triumph over Haman the Agite. And then for the first time in the whole of Esther, we end a chapter with Haman, not drinking and celebrating in 3.15, not delighting in chapter 5 verse 14, but now in a state of depression and despair as he's being carried along by events outside his control because verse 14 of chapter 6 says, it's time for a feast with Queen Esther and the attendants scoop him up. So let's pause here for a few moments and just make some comments about chapter 6. Firstly, what's really interesting in this pivotal chapter is that these events aren't part of Esther's plan overshadowing anything that her and Mordecai can cook up. The true king is at work, you see, just like he always is. And no, it's not Xerxes. The king who never sleeps, who never has a restless night, never forgets, he is at work, not only exalting his people, but working towards redeeming, saving them. Working through the king's insomnia, the request to read about his achievements, for Haman to arrive at the palace just as the king is thinking about what to do with Mordecai. You see, God's plan, the true king, is being outworked in all of those events. And what this event has done in chapter 6, sandwiched between the first banquet of Esther and the second, is not only allow space for Haman's plan to be put into action, the plan to kill Mordecai, but in contrast, creates a space where God can silently work out his plan to give life to his people, even though there are those that want to kill them. You see, what this reminds us is that Esther's plan is actually being overshadowed by God's. Her plan is important, but God is the one who's actually going to save. Or an evil will never have the final say for God's people. So let's move to scene number two. This is Esther's banquet. This is chapter seven. Esther's banquet, Haman's demise. Now, we don't know how much Esther knows about the previous events with Mordecai. But the author wants us to have them in the front of our mind as we proceed to Esther's next banquet. So Haman and Mordecai are there. Uh, sorry, Haman and King Xerxes are there. And after some wine, the king asks Esther the same question as he's done before in chapter 7, verse 2. What can I do for you? And finally this time, Esther lets it out. Look at verse 3 and 4, chapter 7. If I have found favor with your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life and spare my people. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed and annihilated. If we'd merely been sold as slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. Now the king is absolutely furious and offended that someone would attempt to kill his queen and her people at this moment. And little does he know that that person is at the same table as he is. Look at his response in verse 5. Who is it, the man who dares do this? Where is he? And then Esther says there's so much color and clarity in verse 6. An adversary, the enemy, the vile Haman. I love that line. The vile Haman. 
And at that moment we read, Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Not only has Mordecai been exalted, now the king knows that Haman was the one to plot against the death of the Jews. Well, not only is the king full of wine, he's now full of rage, so much so, he leaves, he heads out to the garden and takes a walk. And Haman, he's overcome with fear, he's like a chicken with his head cut off, he's running all over the place. He knows his fate, he knows that he's staring death in the face. Now, we don't know what Esther did or said at this moment, but we do know she's sitting down on a couch, verse 8. Haman's getting more agitated. And the moment the king comes in, Haman trips over, falls on the couch that Esther is on and lands on top of her. It's absolutely unthinkable situation. And the king sees her and shouts out, will he even molest the queen while she's with me in the house? Now, it's unlikely, of course, that Haman was actually doing what the king accused him of. But given the situation, it's clear that he was closer than he should have been to the queen. And that position has compromised him. And that was it, the final straw. Haman is quickly led away in a very, very dramatic few moments. (sighs) But then one of the king's servants in the room who saw this pipes up and says, Hey, king, Haman has a big pole set up in the front of his yard with the intent to kill Mordecai, verse 9. And without hesitation, in another, in another great reversal of this story, the king commands that Haman be hung on his very own pole. And so while we haven't seen the death decree for the Jews resolved or repelled, we'll leave the episode today with God's plan dominating as the story pivots. The enemy of God's people is killed on a pole and the life of Mordecai and Esther is spared. So, what do we make of this? Well, a couple of insights of uh, Esther 6 and 7, two thoughts to close with. Firstly, something to know, and secondly, something to be reminded of. So something to know. We need to know that God has a better plan at work than what you and I can come up with. You see, Esther's best work plans for the banquet, they're really overshadowed by God's perfect timing. After all, it's God's own plan that causes the story to pivot in chapter 6. And the character that's doing most moving and shaking, even though he's not mentioned, is actually God. It's not that God isn't making use of Esther's banquet, or that he doesn't work in and through Haman's evil plan. It's just that he's not dependent upon Esther having it all together, or for Haman to be a nice moral kind of guy for God to work, you see. Later on in the New Testament, we learn more about the doctrine of God's providence, how his plans are at work in and through people, as Colossians 1.17 says. And it says that in Christ, all things hold together. What scripture presents us with, you see, is not that God merely sustains life, but there's actually a purposeful control and intent behind it all as he carries on his purpose from one place to another. You know, there's so much talk right now about plans and future hope with the roadmaps out of COVID being produced everywhere. People are eager to know the next step, the next plan. I'm mindful that you see the AFL as well, scrambling almost every day with a desperate plan to restart the 2020 season. As a church, we're planning too. How can we gather Each stage of the restrictions, no matter how long it looks for, how can we be a mission or how can we be a Jesus-shaped community in this space, we'll have a plan. So it's not that planning is wrong or that we should not plan. It is good, it is right to plan. It's it's just as Proverbs 19.21 says, many are the plans in a person's heart, but it it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. You know, God has a plan too, a roadmap if you like. And his plan gives us concrete hope because it's grounded in his character. Not chance, not wishful thinking, not even having a perfectly balanced altogether life. It is a plan that has a number of steps in it too. You know what God's plan is called? It's called redemptive history. 
Starting with Abraham, he's been actively working to show humanity who he is, his grace in electing a nation, his desire for nations to live under his care. It's a plan to rescue people from sin and judgment and death. And because God is the guarantee of this, in spite of his people's failings and fickle hearts, even as they live in exile, away from home like Esther was, like we are today, he is still at work fulfilling his plans, which center on the person and work of Jesus. It's at the cross of Jesus where we find the great pivot of our story, of all history, where sorrows turn to joy, where death has been swallowed up in life. And right now, God's plan is for you and me, the church, to reach out to the world, showing the same generosity and grace that Jesus has shown us. Reminding everyone that they're loved and welcomed into God's plan for the world, for all things to be gathered under King Jesus. And the end of God's plan is still to come, where he'll throw evil and death into hell, finally overcoming them all. And in Jesus, that can be the plan and the roadmap for your life. After all, he came to bring you home, and he's there with you every step of the way. So that's something that we need to know. God's plan centers on Christ. Secondly, sometimes we just need to be reminded that God will ultimately defeat all his enemies. Did you know that? God will defeat his enemies. What Esther 6 and 7 remind us is that God is the one who will defeat them. You see, in order to deliver the Jewish people from annihilation, as God promised, God had to destroy the evil that threatened their existence. And in the case, this came in a very personal way in the person of Haman. And this was the great reversal. Although Haman looked powerful, God's kingdom plan is mightier still. And in a greater reversal still to come in chapter 9, all the Jewish people will be saved, not just Mordecai, the Jew, and their Esther. And then in an even greater reversal still, when Jesus died on another pole in public for all the powers of heaven and hell to see, God overthrow and forgave my own evil, my own death. Except unlike Haman, Jesus wasn't guilty. He died willingly for you and me, for our guilt, our shame, our rebellion. And in God's story, that's called sin. And because Jesus is the greater redeemer, he is still redeeming us. Each day, like when I had that lasagna moment, Jesus saves me from my own evil, my own sin. As we close today, I want you to take a moment just to think about how God is at work in your life in all those moments in the past that you've found yourself in this week. All the just because incidents, all the planning you have done, even in this time and place with the changes to church and community, work and home, here's the question, how is God working out his plan to save you? How is he still working that out in light of what we've seen in Esther chapter 6 and 7? Because, you know, one day God will overthrow all evil. He will win. He will defeat his enemies. And that happened on the cross. And he invites us into his plan centered on Christ with a greater hope that we could ever have or come up with on our own. So what would it look like for you to give yourself, your life, your week, your day over to this plan that centers on Jesus, your Savior and your Redeemer, with the hope that one day God will overcome all the evil in this world, that there is going to be a moment when he'll wipe away every tear from every eye and we'll sit around his throne in his kingdom crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This is the Jesus that you can know that invites you into his kingdom with clarity and certainty and concrete hope for yourself, for your relationships, as you face COVID and the financial implications and the stress from work. Why not trust yourself to God's plan? You can in Jesus Christ. Let's just pray.
Our Father God, we are so thankful that you have a plan to come and redeem us back into your kingdom for yourself. That life exists to glorify and make you look worthy and valuable and truly as you are. And your plan centers on Christ. And we thank you that's the case. And for the story of Esther, where we're reminded that you will overcome evil and death. And that in us, you already have overcome evil and death and sin. While we fight in this world, the internal struggle, while we have a spiritual battle between our sin and the identity that we have as your people, Father, we know that you are stronger. And so we just commit our life to you, the all-strong, all-powerful God. May you draw us closer to yourself this week, reminding us that your plan is centered on Christ. It has a purpose. It has an end point and that you draw us into your kingdom to be part of that. May you be given the glory in all we think and say and do. Amen. everyone. Let's now spend some time praying as the people of God. Please close your eyes and listen. Pray along with me as we spend time talking to our wonderful God and Savior. Our great God and Father, we are so thankful that you have given us your word, that in there we know that it's everything for life and godliness, to know who you are, to know who we are in light of you, to know the way of salvation, to know that you have had a plan from eternity past, outworking 
always focused on Jesus. That in your word we see that the end goal of our life is to be gathered as your people in your place under your loving rule and care. We thank you for the wisdom that you have put into our salvation put into showing us who you are in your word, in your creation, in all the creativity that is around us. Father, we thank you in light of what we've heard today that you are the God who does overcome his enemies. That those who oppose you and your people, Jesus, one day you will be king and you will throw them away where there is no, where is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Father, we look forward to the time when there is no more evil and sickness and sin that you wipe away every tear from every eye. Father, may until that time, may more people come into your kingdom. We pray for Trinity Church Golden Grove and and in every one of us here, that we would have gospel opportunities to be able to tell and speak of the saving character, the worth, the beauty, the magnificence, the glory of God to those around us at this time. That we would have moments to share the gospel with them in what we say that we would remind people that there is a God who does love them. There is a God who sent Jesus to the cross in, in their place, dying the death they deserve to give them life and forgiveness with you. And we thank you, that Father, that Jesus is the one that stands before God, before you. And he stands there appealing to his wounds as a way, as a means of righteousness, not our own efforts, not what we can do, but what you have done, Lord Jesus. Father, we know that in this world at the moment there it is groaning under the pains and the agony of COVID. We recognize that that is a sign of the brokenness in our world, of sin, that the world is not as it should be. Father, at this time we pray for your mercy. We ask that you would give wisdom to doctors and and medical staff, scientists to be able to create a vaccine. Father, give all of us in our wonderful country, Australia, the ability to think of the other person, to put their needs before our own, to to respect the social distancing measures, to be people in the church that faithfully steward your creation so that we can then show other people there is a God. Father, help us in this time to bring more people to you. We pray for gospel opportunities. Father, we're mindful of the other Trinity churches too, that we all of us are in this in this same family, this same boat, as we think about what it looks like to return to be a gathered church once more. We long for that day. We pray that you would hasten it. Give us wisdom to work out what that looks like in the current time and space. Father, we're mindful that we want to be faithful at handling your word. Help us to continue to be a confessing church that confesses Jesus Christ as our Savior. Our great God and Father, we thank you once more for your word that Jesus is the word of life. We thank you this week that we could hear how the word of life, Jesus, is going forth to other nations through the CMS workers that we were able to see and talk with on Tuesday. Father, we pray that in your wisdom and sovereignty, you would protect them and place them in pockets and moments of opportunities to share faithfully your word. We thank you for the many chances they've had. We pray for gospel opportunities for them that you will grow them to be individuals who faithfully love you more and more at this time, that they will grow in the grace and the knowledge of you. Help them to care for your world, for those around them as well. Father, we pray that the churches they are in would know how to steward the resources faithfully, to care for those wisely. 
Father, use them, the CMS missionaries at this time, to spread the grace and the light and the fragrance of life, giving hope and salvation in Jesus Christ to all across our globe. We thank you that you are a God concerned with the nations and that one day, Lord, from every tribe and every tongue, every language, every people group, there will be those gathered around your throne singing, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. And we thank you that in your grace that we get to be part of that. Father, help us to lead our families well, our spouses, our husbands, our wives. Help us to uh, faithfully teach your word to those around us. Father, help us to uh, go into our world, into our workplaces, into the shopping centers, at home with our housemates. Father, may we do that as followers of you. Father, we know this time has brought challenges to many and we pray for the vulnerable in our community that you would be a God of all comfort and peace, that you would look after those vulnerable people. We pray for those that are experiencing domestic um, violence, that have experienced pain and hardship because of sinful, selfish people at this time, that you would comfort them and Father, they would see that there is a God there who rules above life and death. You would bring them into the fold of a church so they can be cared for and see and taste and see that you are the good saviour and the healer. We ask for those of us who struggle at this time with our own challenges. Father God, that you would remind us continually, you are the good shepherd. You go before your sheep. We find our comfort and rest and joy in you. So as a great sovereign God, we commit all our prayers to you in the name of Jesus Christ, who hears us and stands before God the Father as our representative, as our Saviour, as our Lord. And we long for the day to see you. We thank you that you live and reign, one God, forevermore with the Holy Spirit in perfect unity. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.